This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Change Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Begays. Thank you once again for joining us on this program. We have a couple of exclusives. We're going to call them exclusives. We have an interview with Michael Cohen, the former president's personal attorney. You know, the one who went to prison, Otisville, upstate New York. In connection with that hush money payment case that former President Trump was not charged in connection with. It's important to mention that. However, the person who flipped on him was. Many of my fellow inmates at Otisville used to throw at me, um, or I should say throw in my face, that if I would have shut up, I would not have complied with the subpoenas like Dan Scavino didn't or Mark Meadows. Uh, or others, that I would have been the first one on Donald's pardon list uh, when he had lost the re-election. I do not, at this point in my life, regret cooperating and providing the information that I have. By the way, Michael Cohen went down to the Manhattan DA's office this past week. So I I asked him about that in this exclusive interview. All right, so that's in the program. And I spent a couple of days down in Tucson, Arizona, close to the border, talking about fentanyl and this concern that U.S. officials have that these cartels may have started or may start producing fentanyl on this side of the border. Anybody have any questions? Before dawn, agents from Homeland Security Investigations huddled to brief on the raid. Their target, a house where suspects possibly tied to fentanyl distribution allegedly operate. What I saw was a raid on a house in Tucson where investigators found a lot of chemicals, 
what they believe could be precursor chemicals that go into making fentanyl, which of course, as you know by now, if you've been listening to ACF, we've spent a lot of time talking about fentanyl and how devastating it has been for families across America. So we're at over 100,000 people who have died from an overdose, primarily driven by fentanyl. And these press pills are particularly problematic because they look, they are often disguised as something else. And at a time when we've seen um, drug use, uh, substance use among adolescents, 14 to 18 year olds, they're at record low rates. But at the same time, we're seeing increases in overdose deaths in that same population. So they may think, a young person might think they're, they're getting uh, Xanax or some other pill uh, often bought online when it's really pressed fentanyl. Some of these chemicals mixed in to make this drug can make fentanyl 50 times more powerful than heroin. Think about that. And that's why you have this death toll rising, and that's why you have now U.S. law enforcement officials feverishly working to track down the people who are distributing this deadly synthetic drug. And so that's why we came down to Arizona, where there have been a number of seizures in the last, I don't know, three months or so. In other words, law enforcement has stepped up its operations. Right now, though, we're going to start with Michael Cohen, the former president's personal attorney. Now, listen, some of you might say, hey, I don't want to hear from that guy anymore. He's in the past. Let's look ahead. But I believe he has insight into the former president that most people don't have. Michael Cohen spent a lot of time with the former president. And then he flipped and went to prison because of some of the things that he says he did on behalf of the former president. Michael Cohen, thanks for being with us. Good to speak to you again, Jeff. All right. So, Michael, you went downtown Manhattan once again and you met with the Manhattan DA's office. What did they want to know? Well, Jeff, as much as I would like to be able to share with you and all of your listeners, all of the information and the sum and substance of my conversation with the district attorney's team. As I'm sure you've heard, I did make the promise that I would not discuss the sum and substance. I would not discuss who was in the room, uh, the topics that were brought up, simply because they are seriously looking to restart that part of the investigation that would deal with me, if that makes any sense to you. I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the hush money payment. Is that what you're talking about? Well, amongst other things, for sure. So what specifically about that? Obviously, it's something that, well, the Manhattan DA's office seemed to be investigating a few years ago, but then it seemed like the investigation dried up. Is that the case as far as you know? So that's really a question that's best left to Alvin Bragg and to the team uh, to answer. You may recall that Mark Pomerantz 
and Carrie Dunn both resigned in protest to the decision not to immediately indict Donald Trump uh, for that specific charge. As of the other day, and you may have seen this in the New York Times, a fantastic article written by Ben Protest and Willie Rashbaum, where they write that the questioning of the lawyer, Michael D. Cohen, offered the clearest sign yet that the district attorney's office was ramping up its investigation into Mr. Trump's role in the $130,000 hush money deal. Um, Again, you know, one of the things that I am unfortunately constrained to do, and not because I'm constrained by any document or any threat or fear of threat, but simply because they made the request not to talk about the specific topics um, and not to talk about the specific individuals that were present uh, in the room. I can, however, say to you that I anticipate returning, and I'm sure you'll see more of my return to that office in the upcoming future. What is what is your reaction to Alan Weisselberg? He, of course, the chief financial officer for Trump Org, sentenced to five months in Rikers Island for orchestrating a tax fraud scheme at the Trump Organization. What's your reaction to his sentence? Look, he's 75 years old. Even one day in Rikers has to be pretty lousy. Um, However, if you look at the length of time that Allen was involved in this ongoing and continuous perpetuation of tax frauds and so on, I think that the settlement of five months, which will amount to 100 days, is extremely light, especially as it compares to my three years plus another three years of supervised release for the allegations of my tax evasion. And, you know, if you look and if you read or have you read, Jeff, my newest book, which also made the New York Times bestseller called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. One of the things I talk about in there is how the prosecutors, now again, that's a federal case, but how the prosecutors threatened that if I did not plead guilty to things that I didn't do, including tax evasion or misrepresentation to a bank, that they were going to file an 80-page indictment, 48 hours, and that's the first time I ever heard from them, 48 hours after that first communication not just against me, but that would include my wife. Now, the DA's office certainly could have done and played the same type of hardball with Weisselberg because the ultimate goal was to get Weisselberg to tell the truth as it related to Donald. And one of the things that he did not do is to tell the truth. Allen fell on the sword. And he fell directly on the sword, pushing others onto the sword as well, like Jeff McConney, the comptroller, uh, and others, simply to protect Donald and putting the system through one and a half years of litigation only to give him that five-month sentence, the 100 days in Rikers Island. I think it is disproportionate sentencing especially as it relates to me. 
All right, so let me let me ask you about that, Michael. Alan Weisselberg, he was, as you noted, under a lot of pressure to flip, but he stayed loyal to the former president. Do you regret turning on the former president? Should you have played that out in a different manner? You know, that's a great question, Jeff, and it's something many of my fellow inmates at Otisville used to throw at me, um, or I should say throw in my face, that if I would have shut up, I would not have complied with the subpoenas like Dan Scavino didn't or Mark Meadows uh, or others, that I would have been the first one on Donald's pardon list uh, when he had lost the re-election. I do not, at this point in my life, regret cooperating and providing the information that I have. I have received and I have asked for nothing from anyone, but I do not regret making the move that I did because I believe that if I did not do it, that there's a likely chance or at least a likelier chance that Donald would have won the presidency in 2020. And my biggest fear is that our democracy would be lost and that Donald would have created, somehow created, or again continued and tried to create an autocracy, something that he desperately wants for himself. You, of course... Part of the reason you, well, the reason you went to prison was because of that $130,000 hush money payment. In 2018, Michael, you pleaded guilty to federal campaign finance charges stemming from your role in those hush money payments. You talked about how your fellow inmates were giving you a hard time for not staying loyal to the former president, what was it like in Otisville? Did you hear that a lot from other inmates telling you that you should have stayed loyal and that you should not have turned on them? Well, from some, yes. From the bulk, no. And even the folks, uh, my fellow inmates, that felt that I should have stayed quiet, I should have not cooperated with law enforcement, with Congress and others, they were just true Trump supporters, but we still maintained friendships while we were there. We would still play cards. We'd still shoot hoops. We'd still throw a basketball and play baseball together on Sundays. You know, political opinions in prison, even someplace like Otisville, Satellite Camp, which is where I was at, are things that are better left unsaid. So as I would say to them, the same that I will now you know, say to you, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm clearly entitled to mine. What could have, would have, might have happened, I don't know. But I feel very comfortable in the decision that I made. Now, you know, one of the things that you also just brought up, and you use the plural, is my participation in the hush money payments, meaning more than one. And I did plead guilty in 2018 to two counts of campaign finance violation. One of them I totally own, the $130,000 hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. I own my responsibility in that. However, I want to be very clear, and I, again, talk about it at length in Revenge. It's a book I really believe everybody should read. But one of the things that I talk about 
is that I had nothing to do with the payment of $150,000 to Karen McDougal, another tryst that Donald Trump was involved with. That was done by David Pecker, National Enquirer, through AMI, the parent company. What I did is I looked over the documents to ensure, at the direction and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump, looked over the documents prepared by AMI, National Enquirer, and David Pecker by their attorneys to ensure that Donald was protected in the event that Karen also decided to come out and to talk about her relationship with Donald. So it's amazing how I end up having to plead guilty because that's what the prosecutors, Tom McKay, Nick Roos, Andrea Griswold, and others, that's what they were demanding. Otherwise, again, they were filing an 80-page indictment immediately that would include my wife. Have you been asked by the Manhattan DA's office recently about that other hush money case? I do not even acknowledge that that's what we've talked about um, as far as even the Stormy Daniels matter, something that basically everybody has surmised uh, was one of the things that I went in to speak. But again, Jeff, as much as I would like to lay out for you the two and a half hour conversation that I had with the district attorney's uh, team, I was asked, again, not to disclose the sum and substance simply because there's no reason for me to do so and provide any form of a benefit to the Trump team, who no doubt will fight this tooth and nail as they do every single case, hoping and believing that they can BS the entire system and escape liability. Well, listen, the, the former president has called some of these, most of these investigations, witch hunts. He accuses prosecutors of being partisan. He has not been charged with anything. Even in the documents case, the classified documents case that led to the search of Mar-a-Lago, you see now President Biden has his own classified documents case. What is your reaction to that? So first, Jeff, let me just stop you for one second. Because mixing Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago case with Joe Biden's, it's improper. If there is something that Joe Biden did wrong, then Joe Biden should be held accountable, no different than if it was you, me, or any one of your listeners. And the fact that those documents were in places that they should not be, and there's an investigation going on into that, does not absolve Donald Trump from what he did or the 300 documents that he took. So they need to be handled separate from one another and not combined. In other words, because Joe Biden had documents with his car or in his lawyer's office or what have is not a reason to absolve Donald Trump of taking 33 boxes out of the White House, which included approximately 200 plus top secret documents. One does not exonerate the other. And I'm going to tell you my reason why. Because if in fact you or I or any of your listeners took a single document 
The fact that Joe Biden had documents would not absolve us. And everybody is supposed to be considered the same under the eyes of the law. Well, there are a lot of Trump supporters in Congress, Trump supporters who voted for the former president who would disagree with you. And so they could, and so they should, and they can do whatever they want. Like I said before, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. However, the law is supposed to be applied equally. Just because you're a former president, just because you know, you're a member of Congress, your, your obligations under the law are not supposed to be greater than the average citizen. We all are responsible under the same law and to the same effect, whether they believe so or not. All right. You said earlier you're going to meet again with the DA's office. When is that going to be? Yeah, again, so I can't disclose any of that information, but I do promise you, somehow or another, the information gets out and everybody shows up to the front steps and, you know, they hit me with the questions as I'm going in and I'm coming out and that's all fine. And just as soon as the DA gives me the okay to say whatever I want, I will be making the rounds and I will disclose exactly what's going on. My hope is that the matter proceeds. And this again is, it's my hope is that they finally do what again, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn believed over a year ago should have been done. And that's to immediately file an indictment. You know, one of the big problems that we see, Jeff, is that they didn't file the indictment for some unknown reason. And that was really very upsetting, obviously, to a lot of people, because the facts are the facts. A problem that we all face right now is this notion that prosecutors are responsible not just to prosecute cases, but also to turn out convictions. And that's, that's inaccurate. The job of a prosecutor is to bring a case if, in fact, that something has been done, something illegal, that a criminal case could be brought. And they're not supposed to be thinking about their conviction rate when they're thinking about prosecution. They should not go hand in hand. Unfortunately, all too often, they do. Michael Cohen, thanks for coming on, ACF. As always, Jeff, you be good, my friend. Fentanyl is the single deadliest drug threat our nation has ever encountered. Those are the words of Ann Milgram, the administrator of the United States Drug Enforcement Administration. According to the Center for Disease Control, over 100,000 people in the U.S. died of drug overdoses and drug poisonings. In the 12-month period that ended in January of 2022, the majority of those deaths, two-thirds, involve synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Just a tiny amount, two milligrams of fentanyl, is considered a potentially lethal dose. That is the size of just five grains of salt. And fentanyl is being mixed into street drugs like heroin, cocaine, and a new deadlier, more harmful drug called Trank Dope. We're going to have more on that later. Fentanyl is also being packaged and sold as fake pharmaceuticals, look-alike drugs that fool those taking them into believing that they are ingesting an unadulterated dose of prescription medicine, often leading to deadly effects. 
Elaine Cahano spoke with Regina LaBelle, director of the Addiction and Public Policy Initiative at the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown University on CBSN. The Drug Enforcement Administration reported that it confiscated more than 50 million fake prescription pills laced with fentanyl and more than 10,000 pounds of fentanyl powder in 2022. Now, officials say that is enough to kill every American. I want to bring in Regina LaBelle to discuss this. She is the director of the Addiction and Public Policy Initiative at the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown University. Regina, welcome. Can you put into perspective how much fentanyl that really is and how much damage it could have potentially done? So um, this is the Drug Enforcement Administration's uh, reporting. It doesn't include uh, what's come across the border from the Customs and Border Protection that they have um, they've seized. The, the bigger issue here is also uh, the mortality rates that we've seen in this country. So we're at over 100,000 people who have died from a, an overdose, primarily driven by fentanyl. And these press pills are particularly problematic because they look, they are often disguised as something else. And at a time when we've seen um, drug use, uh, substance use among adolescents, 14 to 18 year olds, they're at record low rates. But at the same time, we're seeing increases in overdose deaths in that same population. So they may think, a young person might think they're, they're getting a Xanax or some other pill uh, often bought online when it's really pressed fentanyl. And young people, 14 to 18 year olds, um, it's not a huge number, but we are seeing increasing overdose deaths in that population among people who are buying these drugs online. So that's why, you know, the, the seizure is a, an important piece, but it's not the whole story. Uh, there's a lot more we can do in terms of, you know, the international side, far, uh, far from the border when we're looking at illicit finance. How do we take away the profits from these international drug trafficking organizations? So, yeah, on that point then, Regina, what is the cause of this uptick of fentanyl in the U.S.? How is it actually getting here? So it used to be that, you know, we had um, fentanyl that was coming in uh, through the mail or, you know, by planes. Now we're seeing it's mostly coming through Mexico into the United States, uh, where often, you know, it's it's being mixed um, either at the street level or by the cartels uh, into cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera, other drugs in addition to heroin. Um, but the but the majority of overdose deaths, over 70 percent, involve fentanyl. So, you know, it's a it is a, a very potent uh, medicine, but most importantly, it's really cheap and it's easier for cartels to traffic. It's easier to produce. It's a you know, it's not like when we used to just um, look at, you know, poppy fields or it's a synthetic drug that's produced in labs. So given those factors, Regina, is there anything the U.S. government can do to curb this and the opioid crisis more broadly? Yes, I mean, there's a lot the government can do. And Congress has before it legislation, you know, in the omnibus bill, in the budget for fiscal year, for next fiscal year, that has some important pieces of the puzzle. So we have to make sure we're reducing the harms associated with substance use, with these lethal forms of drugs. And that includes syringe services programs, fentanyl test strips, so people know what they're getting. Increasing harm reduction programs is one piece. And Congress has before it legislation that can reduce some of the barriers to treatment. I mean, about 12% of people with a substance use disorder in this country get treatment. 
If you think about that in comparison to any other disease, that's appalling. That's not the level of treatment we give to someone with heart disease, with diabetes. And if, if, and if a substance use disorder is a disease, we need to treat it as such. So there's a lot we can do, um, including going after illicit finance and also um, in-country co corruption on the supply side. But, you know, the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Biden administration uh, acknowledges that this isn't a one shot deal. This isn't just about the supply side or seizures at the border. It has to include the entire issue of treatment, harm reduction, recovery supports and preventing substance use from even beginning. Dr. Raul Gupta is the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy and the first physician ever to serve in that role. He spoke with CBS Saturday Morning host Jeff Glor about the deadly fentanyl crisis. You're the first physician to serve in this role. What message do you hope that sends? Well, I know that the message it sends is that this is a public health crisis that the nation is enduring. As Gupta told us, gone are the days when the root of the drug scourge was found in poppy fields and on farms. Today, it's a chemical world, especially when it comes to fentanyl. So many of these precursors are come for fentanyl are coming from China. Why can't more be done to limit the amount coming in from China? Well, that's exactly what we're doing from day one. It's, it's still coming in, though, a lot. Well, what we want to do is make sure that we are working with the People's Republic of China or PRC uh, to make sure that they are holding accountable the bad actors within China that are shipping. But we also want to make sure that uh, we know what's coming in before it gets here. Um, that is not happening to a level that it's acceptable to me at this point, and that's exactly why we're continuing to push them to do more. Is the bigger problem the bad actors in China who are selling the precursors, or is it the, the drug dealers and the cartels in Mexico who are using those precursors to manufacture? I think, um, Jeff, what you just highlighted is the global imprint of this problem. The Biden administration has not rejected the controversial idea of expanding safe injection sites where people can legally use drugs. Legislation remains tied up in courts. The administration has openly pushed for drug treatment programs inside prisons. Lately, there has been some better news. New data released this week shows overdose deaths that surged during the pandemic have declined slightly for five straight months. We certainly feel confident that there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel, meaning that we've now seen about two and a quarter percent reduction from, uh, from the peak of overdose deaths. That's about 2,500 people. But think about it like a large ship. You, you can't just turn it around. You've got to slow it down, and then it takes time to turn that around. CBS News has learned that law enforcement officials here in the U.S. are concerned that the Mexican cartels are trying to move more fentanyl labs here to U.S. soil. This week, I was embedded with authorities as they raided a house in Tucson, Arizona. It was a house where they suspected a new illegal fentanyl lab was being built. Anybody have any questions? Before dawn, agents from Homeland Security Investigations huddled to brief on the raid. Their target, a house where suspects possibly tied to fentanyl distribution allegedly operate. We're uh, executing two federal search warrants this morning. We're looking for potential precursor chemicals. Precursor chemicals used to make fentanyl 50 times stronger than heroin. The operation involved multiple law enforcement agencies. This is what appears to be a quiet residential neighborhood 
in Tucson, Arizona. And right now, early this morning, police have swarmed this neighborhood. And this is what agents confiscated. More than 100 pounds of precursor chemicals. And this showed that at least some came from China. The Mexican drug cartels ensure that the elements that go into making fentanyl are shipped separately. Why is it so hard to stop the distribution? Because there's so many different ways that it can be smuggled into the United States, right? It's coming in through 18-wheelers. It's coming in through passenger vehicles. It's coming in through people walking across the border. It's being backpacked into the country. Last year, the DEA seized over 50 million fentanyl lace pills and over 10,000 pounds of fentanyl powder, enough to kill every American. Fentanyl killed Misty Little's 26-year-old daughter, Cheyenne, who did not know that she had swallowed a pill laced with the drug. I want people to know that Cheyenne was a, a vibrant young woman that had her whole entire future ahead of her, that one bad decision she shouldn't have lost her life over. What investigators sees here today is likely just a drop in the bucket when it comes to disrupting the flow of fentanyl. The more significant discovery is that the cartels may be trying to set up fentanyl labs here in the U.S. The Office of National Drug Control said that it is tracking the spread of xylazine closely. It's something that is being mixed with fentanyl. In fact, according to the New York Times, a study published in June detected xylazine in the drug supply in 36 states and the District of Columbia. Aubrey Whalen, who is a staff writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, joins us now. Aubrey, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're spending all this time talking about fentanyl, only to find out that there's another element out there that, again, is making fentanyl uh, as destructive as it is. It's called xylazine. Can you tell us more about it? So um, xylazine uh, is an animal tranquilizer. It's not certified for human use. It has sedative properties, but it's not an opioid. Um, and it's in Philadelphia, it's been combined with fentanyl um, and sold on the street as trank dope um, is like the uh, colloquial term for it. Um, so basically what xylazine... Um, the theory is that, that health officials here in Philly have is that um, xylazine was originally used to cut fentanyl um, because fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, has replaced most of the heroin supply in Philadelphia. Um, and the difference between fentanyl and heroin is that fentanyl is significantly stronger than heroin, but it has a shorter half-life. So if you're um, a habitual um, heroin or opioid user, um, if you're using fentanyl, you're going to go into withdrawal much quicker um, than you would if you were using heroin. Um, so the theory is, is that um, xylazine was added to fentanyl in an effort to increase, give it, give it legs, as they say, um, to kind of increase the high um, and lengthen it. Um, but there are some really concerning side effects um, that xylazine produces that um, have been really devastating um, for the population of people who use drugs in Philadelphia. I, I guess that's why they are calling this version of fentanyl the zombie drug? Oh, I, I don't like to use terms like that because I feel like it kind of dehumanizes people who use drugs. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of paints them as not people. Um, 
these are people with addiction, people who are struggling with the disease, who are, you know, really kind of were sprung upon uh, with this with this drug um, that was added to, you know, fentanyl in many cases without their knowledge. Um, so there's a lot of people in Philadelphia who are who absolutely hate Trank, um, who hate how it makes them feel. Um, but they're addicted to it because that's it's their drug supply has been adulterated with it and they can't find anything else. Um, but the side effects are, are alarming. It's, it's a, it's a serious sedative. So, um, it increases the sedative properties of, you know, opioids, which also are sedatives or can have sedative properties. Um, that makes it harder to, uh, reverse an overdose. Uh, if someone is using Trank dope and they overdose, um, Narcan will kind of, work to kick the fentanyl out of the system, but, um, uh, Nar- Narcan the overdose reversing drug. Um, but Narcan has no, um, effect on xylosine because xylosine isn't an opioid. So, um, people will have like, it'll take a longer time to revive someone from an overdose. Um, that's from trank dope because, um, you know, they might've, you might've helped with the, with, with the fentanyl part of their overdose, but the xylosine is still working on their system. So they might still be, sedated or knocked out and, and harder to revive. It might take, you know, rescue breaths or oxygen, supplemental oxygen to kind of help them get back to themselves. Um, and the other thing that xylosine does is it, um, it's believed to cause uh, serious lesions, skin lesions on the body and not just at the site of uh, injections. So people are, even people who smoke or snort um, their fentanyl and when it's combined with trank, they'll report wounds showing up on their body. Um, people will report who inject trank dope will report wounds showing up at, at, on parts of their body that they've never injected into. Um, and these are really serious wounds that take a long time to heal. And health officials in Philly believe that it's because, um, xylosine interacts with your vascular system in a way that makes wounds like easy to open and slow to heal. So, um, it's created a, a really kind of a perfect storm in Philly, um, in terms of treating people, you know, with addiction, who are dependent on on xylosine. Any idea how prevalent xylosine is in the drug supply in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia's uh, dope supply, so dope is kind of the term that the health department is now using to describe um, like powdered drugs sold as opioids, um, because the supply is so variable, you can't really say, well, this is definitely fentanyl or this is definitely heroin. Um, so in the dope supply. Um, Nearly all of the samples that the health department has tested um, over the last year, um, all the samples of dope that the health department has tested over the last year have turned up positive for xylosine. Um, So that's really concerning. It's really widespread. um, And it's it's nearly unavoidable for, for drug users at this point. How does that compare to other states and the District of Columbia? So there was a study uh, last year, the study authors looked at toxicology reports from overdose deaths in 10 cities, counties, and states. Um, And one of the cities they looked at was Philadelphia. Um, And they found that in Philly, xylosine was present in nearly 26% of overdose deaths in 2020. That was the highest rate of the 10 areas they looked at. But across all of those regions, xylosine was present in about 6% of overdose deaths in 2020, which was a 20-fold increase um, between 2015 and 2020. So uh, xylosine is very prevalent in Philadelphia, um, but also definitely present in other drug drug markets. It's just probably worse in Philly. 
Apparently, this drug exists in some sort of legal gray zone um, because it is not listed as a controlled substance. What? Why is that? Yes, um, it's not approved for human use. It's a it's a it's a horse tranquilizer, an animal tranquilizer. Um, so it's it's primary primary application has been in um, the veterinary world. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not on the controlled substances list, um, and that yeah that makes it kind of easier to obtain than some other illicit substances, um, and also kind of as you said in the legal gray area because it's not explicitly laid out in the Controlled Substances Act. How new is this on the scene? Because yeah, we've been talking a lot about fentanyl, but again, xylazine is is uh, is a word that. I think the average viewer or listener does not hear very often. No, um, I can say from for my part, um, just reporting from Philly, I heard people talking about Trank Dope a couple of years ago. Um, but at the time, it was sort of uh, it was it was seen as like, okay, well, this corner sells Trank Dope, and that corner has fentanyl, as opposed to every single corner has Trank Dope now because that's all you can get. Um, so I think that um, in around 2022 um, and late 2021, um, the city kind of really started to put out alerts on the widespread um, availability of xylazine in the drug supply in Philly. So it's been about two or three years that we've been dealing with it. But um, in the last year, year and a half or so, it's become um, much more widespread um, across the entire dope supply um, than than it had been before. Aubrey Whalen, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodall and District Productive. Don't forget that you can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff McGays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.